I'll begin by asking you a question this morning. Question is this. Do you really know how much that God loves you? Do you ever spend time just thinking about that? Just contemplating the kind of love it would take to send your own son to be sacrificed in your place. This morning I want to introduce you to someone who did this very thing, who would regularly contemplate on the love of God. Someone who intentionally allowed God to speak to him. Someone who let God fill his heart and mind with his goodness, grace, and mercy. This person's name is David. He is the one-time king of Israel. God himself identified him as a man after my own heart. We meet David in Psalm 139. And this morning I want to begin a new series I'm entitled, The Me I've Always Wanted to Be. Some may call me naive, but I truly believe that deep in your heart, the greatest desire you have is to live out the life God planned. I believe that. If the Holy Spirit resides in you, if you are a believer, I know that the Spirit of God is calling from deep within on a consistent basis, wooing you, moving you, drawing you into the life of God. That when you get to heaven, you'll be met with a well done. Isn't that your deepest heart's desire? Isn't that the greatest life you can imagine living. The me I've always wanted to be. Well, on that note, let's turn to Psalm 139. And we will allow this morning, this man after God's own heart, this flawed man after God's own heart to help us become the person we really want to be. There are four points brought out in the first 18 verses of this testimony from the former king of Israel. These four points are these. David tells us that God knows us intimately. Secondly, that he created us intentionally. Three, that he planned our lives individually and four, that he loves us implicitly. Now, now don't worry. You can relax. 
uh, we're not going to cover all that material today. All right. In fact, we're going to be looking at it over the next several weeks. But point one in this these 18 verses of Psalm 139, point one is that God knows me intimately. A under point one is internally. Psalm 139.1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Two important words in that verse that will help us to understand what David is saying. The word searched means to examine the interior of something. It is to investigate the inner parts. The word means literally to journey inside. It's the same term used in Job 28, 3 through 4a. They know how to shine the light in darkness and explore the furthest regions of the earth as they search in the dark for ore. They sink a mine shaft into the earth far from where anyone lives. And that's the concept that Almighty God has driven deeply down inside of us. And he knows us intimately. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us, our fears, our hopes, our dreams, our tears. He's observed us at our very core, and he knows us deeply. He knows us profoundly. He knows us perfectly. For instance, we're told in verse 2b, that he understands my thoughts even afar off. David says, even when I am apart, distant from him, he knows my thoughts. He knows what thought will come into my mind. He knows everything about who I am. And my mindset, he goes on to say in verse 4, there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You know exactly what I'm going to say before I say it. You know the thoughts that come into my mind. You know how I translate them. And you know what's on my tongue before I speak it. God, you know everything about me. You know me better than I know myself, and you understand me when no one else can or will. But he doesn't stop there. David says, not only, Lord, do you know me inwardly, but you also know me externally. Psalm 139, 2a, you know my sitting down and my rising up. Verse 3, you comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Now we may wonder, how does David 
know this? How does he know that God is aware of everything I do and everywhere I go? He sees me at all times because he tells us in verse 5 how he knows this. He says, Lord, you have hedged me behind and before and you've laid your hand upon me. Literally, David is saying, you go before me and you follow after me. I see you both in my windshield and in my rearview mirror. You completely surround me anywhere and everywhere I go. It's the picture of a football play, a running back. The team is lined up, ready for the play. The quarterback calls the signals, and the center snaps the ball. Immediately, the quarterback takes the ball, and he pitches it to his running back. The running back takes an arc, and he's going near the sidelines to try to outrun everyone. But the defense has understood the play, and there are a gang of tacklers over here awaiting him. The running back sees that, and he knows he has no hope in this direction. So he reverses course, and he turns back, and he makes a reverse out of it, except for the fact that there are tacklers on this side too. And they're all running toward him, and pretty soon he realizes He's hedged in. That's the picture of what God does in our lives. He hedges us in. He surrounds us. He is always there, a part of our lives. Now, why does God do this? Is it to try to keep tabs on us? To check in on us? Is he trying to catch us doing something we shouldn't? Going somewhere he knows we know we shouldn't go? No. He hedges us in. He captures us so that he can place his hand upon us so that his hand can stay upon us. Atheistic philosopher Christopher Hitchens, in his book, God is Not Great, said this, I think it would be rather awful, that is, if God really existed, for him to be a permanent, total, round-the-clock, divine supervisor, investigating everything you did, where you never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled by some celestial entity. From the moment of your conception to the moment of your death, it would be a living nightmare. The sad fact is, some of us see God that way as well. The eyes watching from heaven. He's like a principal, a policeman. 
He's always watching to try to catch us doing something wrong, to try to stop us from going in that direction, to try to close the door of the place we shouldn't enter. Pam and I saw this lived out. Uh, this absurd nonsense of God being this policeman. We saw this lived out when we were <clears throat> at Buckner Children's Home. There was one couple there who were house parents, Larry and Melba Sanders. And unfortunately, they became supervisors in the dorm that Pam and I worked in. We were on the second floor. We had boys fifth grade through eighth grade. I had a blast with those boys. And the Sanders were on the bottom floor, and they had the older boys ninth through twelfth grade high school. They seemed nice enough people as you met them, but they were horrific at dealing with teenagers. The first sign Pam and I had that something wasn't right about this was one evening Pam was walking down the uh, flight of stairs from the second floor to the first floor. It was dark, and it was really dark in the stairway. And when she got to the bottom, she got a glimpse of someone standing there in the shadows. It scared her such that she screamed. It was Larry, Larry Sanders, the supervisor. And he put his finger to his lips and told her to shh because he was spying on his boys. The, these were older teenagers, okay, 16, 17, 18, some of them older than that. And some of them were big boys. I mean, you felt like saying yes, sir, to them. The cafeteria that we all ate at was called manna hall because the word manna means what the heck is this? And uh, it, it lacked both in quality and in quantity. There was after every meal, I would go to Taco Bell, you know. But these are 16 through 18-year-old big boys, and this is all they get to eat is at the cafeteria. And so we supplement that with snacks. Well, Larry and his wife would set out a jar of candy Remember, these are 16, 17, 18-year-old boys. They'd set out a jar of candy, you know, little mini Snickers bars or gummy bears or something of that nature. And he would tell these boys they could have one piece. One piece. These were hungry boys. And then he would find different hiding places, and he would just stand there forever trying to catch one of them taking two or more than one. And when he found them doing this, 
he would punish them. They would either have to do extra chores or they would get privileges taken away. We just couldn't believe it. These boys were complaining to us constantly. And so Pam started a log on them. And she turned it into the front office and they got demoted because they were supervising those children wrongly. There was no grace. There was no mercy. There was no forgiveness. It was all strict adherence to their law. They hurt those boys. And it hurts us when we think of God in that way. He is not the divine supervisor who gives no mercy or grace, just punishment and discipline. This attitude is tragically missed by David's words. In fact, this ever-present truth that David is beginning to understand that God is constantly with him, that God hedges him in, that God surrounds him at all times, begins to fill David's mind and his thoughts just go crazy. Verse 6, he says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I can't attain it. He then goes in to a soliloquy in verses 7 through 12 where he says these words, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to Sheol or to the grave, you are there. If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the, light, but the, and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness, I can't hide from you. To you, night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. David, again, is trying to get his mind around this holy and wonderful concept that the God who gave his son that I might be saved walks with me, surrounds me, hedges me in at all times and his mind just goes wild. He says, God, this is so real that even if I were in heaven, you'd be there. Or if I were in Sheol, in the grave, you would be there with me. He says, if I were to fly on the wings of the morning and get dropped off in the deepest sea, you would be there. Even if I would journey into darkness, you would be there. Because darkness is the same as light to you. Even there, your hand would reach for me and try to take hold 
that the blessings of God might come. The hardest class I ever took uh, in uh, seminary or post-seminary was advanced Hebrew. There were only four of us in the class. It was me, a guy like me, a lady who had spent the last 12 years in Israel, and a guy who shouldn't have been in there. He just wasn't ready. But four days a week, we had this class. We'd walk in, the professor would say, Johnny, start reading 2 Samuel chapter 1. Read it in Hebrew first, and then translate it. And then he would ask all these linguistic questions. So you had to study, or I had to study, like four hours every day just for that class. Because you got two grades every day in that class, depending upon how you responded, how you read and answered the questions. So it was intense. Well, during that time, I had to go get my eyes checked. And so I went to an ophthalmologist and you know, he had the, the, the sign before you with all the letters and stuff. And he said, would you read that, that sign? And so I began to read the sign. I could see the letters, you know, almost all the way to the bottom. But when I got finished, it suddenly dawned on me that I had read that entire card from the right to the left. You see, Hebrew is written that way. Hebrew is written from the right side of the page to the left side of the page. And I'd been so intent and intense in studying Hebrew every day that automatically I looked up and read the chart from right to left. I started laughing. I realized I didn't apologize to the guy. But my point is this. The presence of God in your life is real. The presence of God surrounding you, hedging you in, trying to place his hand of blessing on you is very real right now in your life. Right now. But sometimes we are so intent on looking at the problem and staring at our life, thinking why this and why that, that when we look to God, we've got an errant view of who he is. And that errant view, we're looking at him wrong. And when we do that, we don't move toward him. We move away from him because that view causes fear. And the intent of the presence of God with you and around you, following you wherever you go, the intent is to place his hand on you. I want you to compare the story I told about Buckner Children's Home and how those supervisors supervised and directed those children with this story. Certain tribe of Native Americans had a unique 
practice for training boys to become men. When they reached the age of 13, a young man was, would be taking, taken blindfolded into the dense forest and left alone to stay the night. And their belief system, that act, if he endured through the night, would make him then a man. He would begin to be treated like a young man. You can imagine being a boy just turned 13 and sitting with your back against a tree and it's pitch black and you're in the middle of the forest. You, you, you have no sense of where you are. Every little sound is going to catch your ear. Every twig that breaks, you're thinking it's a bear. It's a, it's a lion. It's a wolf. Every leaf you hear crunched, you think they're getting closer. They're coming to me. It would be a night of terror, torture for these boys. But after what seemed like an eternity, finally, the sun would start coming up. And just as it peaked over the horizon and the rays came to where the boy was, he began to get his bearings. He could see the trees reflecting in the distance. He'd see the leaves begin to light up around him. And as the sun came up higher, he could see the trail that was marked to lead him home. But he waited until the sun was high enough that his field of vision was really good and the boy would notice to his utter amazement the figure of a man standing just feet away with a bow and arrow ready. It was his father. Please know when you leave here this morning that the presence of God is all around you. That God is a whisper from you. And that his intent on hedging you in is that he might bless you. He might sustain his hands upon you. You don't walk alone in this life. God wants you to know he is exactly where he needs to be when you need him. Call on him. Trust him. Know that he walks with you these very moments. <laughs>